Welcome to this episode of How We Hatched, a bonus podcast series by Hatchpad. I'm your host, Tim Winkler. Join me as we dive into candid conversations with tech founders and leaders and unveil their unique startup journeys. On today's episode, we sit down with Vlad Eidelman, the CTO and chief scientist at FiscalNote, a market intelligence startup that helps organizations understand what's going on in the world and what they can do about it. Vlad breaks down why he chose to join FiscalNote, the two key questions that inspire the startup's mission, and the type of engineer that would thrive within the company's culture. Grab a drink, relax, and enjoy the episode. Vlad, thank you for joining us on, on the PAIR program. Um, Thanks for having me. My pleasure. For sure. For sure. This, uh, again, is one of those bonus episodes of a miniseries that we call How We Hatched. And, uh, you know, keep it more of like this casual discussion and hearing more about, you know, your unique career journey, you know, where you came from and how you arrived at this current point in your seat today as the CTO and chief scientist of, of Fiscal Note. Um, and so I always like to start, you know, just by having you provide, you know, our, our audience with the quick overview of, of fiscal note and the you know, problems that you're solving here. Yeah, of course. So fiscal note's been around for going on uh, nine years now. And the problem that we're solving has evolved over time, but the core vision and mission actually hasn't it's stayed very consistent. So uh, the wording has changed a bit, but essentially it's to help organizations understand what's going on in the world and what they can do about it. And, and what that actually means for us, because that's a pretty broad vision, is to help our customers through providing data and software solutions and services, identify risks, opportunities in legislation, regulation, other kinds of political and market moving things, so they can navigate both the policy world and the, kind of the financial market world in order to make their companies, whether it's a small operation or a Fortune 500, understand what they're going to be impacted by, by a change in you know, facial bans in Seattle or a huge international ban on some sort of shipping coming from France. So we range from local to global, from small customers to large, to governments, to corporates, helping all of them basically understand what's going on in the world today and what they can do about it. Awesome. Yeah. What a, what a mission. Um, and I, I can say that, uh, you know, being a, a native of the, the DC area here, um, you know, you all popping up on the scene was around 2013 mm-hmm. uh, when, when you all were founded. And I, I can say that uh, you've, you've been one of those startup sweethearts uh, from our market anyways, you know, uh, one of those success stories. And, and I think uh, one of those companies that's kind of set the path for, you know, what, what it means to be a, you know, a really a productive and, and successful startup here. Uh, we've seen, you know, a lot, a lot of companies, um, you know, start, fail. I mean, uh, you know, we, we uh, appreciate kind of like the landscape that you all have almost like set this path uh, in the DC yeah. market. So it's, really, it's been really very exciting. It's certainly, yeah. it was a different market when we started nine years ago. There were a few startups, obviously a few large ones that had kind of incubated the scene. AOL, if we go all the way back, was one of the originals. Mm-hmm. Um, living social, you know, I think so. There was a precedent, but there weren't that many tech startups. There weren't that many uh, gov tech, civic tech, as there are now. And certainly, the diversity of the startups in DC has expanded, as well as some of the size and, and the focus on them. And I, w- one of the things I enjoy the most about Fiscal is that over the time that we've been here, the people that have been here, especially early on, have now some of them moved on and they started their own companies or they're 
you know, first employees at companies. And so there's this kind of spread of the, I think, the culture and some of the, the ideas we've had that we incubated here. And I see that in, you know, at least half a dozen to a dozen other companies that, you know, have people from there. So it feels um, like there's a lot of our fiscal culture that's gone around. Yeah, a little bit of fiscal note in some of these other companies. I, I, I like that. We saw that similarly with like uh, Opower and um, uh, yeah, same with Living Social. Those folks kind of spawning out and starting the next wave of, of startups. So uh, love what you all have done for the, the local ecosystem here. Um, but let's, uh, let's bring it back to you and, and your story. Um, you know, I like to do a little, little flashback here and you know, have you talk to us about your journey, you know, start starting from the roots and, you know, where, where'd you grow up and uh, tell me how you kind of got into the world of tech. Yeah, sure. So I'll skip past the very first part and I'll zoom into something that's probably more relevant. But uh, I was born in, in the Soviet Union in Russia and then immigrated to the U.S., uh, to Maryland, actually, uh, in the early 90s. Uh, and, and growing up there, I think the first memories of computers were my dad, who was also a software programmer. Um, brought back kind of a i386 compact, I think that we got at the time. Uh, and so we got connected to the internet probably when I was in middle school. And I started to get into what we'll call computer science, but at the time was, you know, essentially kind of playing around with different small programs like Visual Basic or C or even Delphi uh, in high school. Uh, and then as I went through to college, I knew that I wanted to focus on kind of two things, like two potentially conflicting ideas in my mind. Um, that again, I didn't have the right vernacular for, but now I can describe them in retrospect. One was understanding the world and how the world works. And so that was the philosophical side. So in, in college, I went to Columbia, we focused on, or I focused on uh, a lot of philosophy. And then the other side was actually creating something. So not just understanding how the world works, but actually being able to actualize and build systems that were able to process information and do something with it. Um, obviously, at the time, I was a little bit grandiose in my assumptions about how much understanding we were able to provide into a system. And so that led me naturally into the synergy of AI. So AI at the time, again, was not exactly the word people were using. It was still uh, a little bit more in the kind of planning phases and game planning people were using AI. But um, specifically, what I got into was natural language processing uh, and machine learning. And so being able to take natural interactive data that you, know, you and I speak in English, French or German, and we can communicate in writing or in speech and taking that as input about how the world is working and then using machine learning, which is algorithms that take a lot of data without having to be programmed with rules to find patterns that are useful then to produce some objective function. Uh, and so I got into that in, in college early on. I started to do an independent study with my undergraduate professor. Uh, and then I got into a NSF RU program for undergraduates. And that kind of really sparked my attention and immediate interest in the research side of it. So um, I can spend some time really diving into a problem, not having kind of really immediate impacts necessarily, but really just understanding why it's important. Um, and, and one of the things that really got drilled into me very early on by the philosophy uh, professors is um, the question is the more important part. Asking the right question is essential. The answer is are obviously useful and they you know, provide further kind of iteration. And especially for applied sciences, the answers are very useful. But kind of starting with the right question and setting the right framework um, is the most important part. So like an approximate answer to the right question is better than an exact answer to the wrong question. And so like I think that confluence of the philosophy bringing that aspect in and understanding the right question to ask and then the 
building uh, with it kind of led me to graduate school. And so then directly out of undergrad, I went to get my PhD. And my PhD was, again, focused on how do we build large-scale natural language processing systems in a distributed computing kind of environment that allow us to take multiple different nodes that are processing their own pieces of data and updating different parameters of the algorithm to kind of learn from this, this mass. Uh, and it was focused mostly on machine translation, but I also covered a little bit of different uh, topics in natural language processing, so coreference resolution, parsing, tagging, sentiment analysis, question answered. So kind of ran the gamut of uh, different kinds of things and basically got just to explore. Um, and I was lucky enough to be funded by uh, two fellowships that I got for graduate work. So that kind of gave me a little bit more freedom even um, outside of the direct funding my advisor had to pursue some of my own kind of side interests. Um, and as I wound down my PhD, I started to think about what I wanted to do next. And it kind of naturally led me to either be at a, a larger tech research lab or to take the opportunity to start at a very, very early stage company that I could kind of help build from the ground up. Uh, and that's the path that kind of led me to fiscal note. Yeah, what an interesting combination of the, the philosophy and the, and the computer science. Um, I really think it's an interesting journey. Uh, you, you, know, you spent um, a number of years in academia, uh, just kind of figuring out what specifically within NLP that was really kind of interesting to you. And, um, you know, you, you end up getting, well, let's, 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 um, so, you know, obviously you went to the University of Maryland for your PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had the local connection here uh, to, you know, fiscal note. Um, how did you first get, uh, how did they first pop on your radar? And, you know, maybe tell me through that, tell me through that first interaction with Tim and, you know, how you guys yeah, first kind of course. came to be. Yeah. So at the time I was actually still living in Boston. Uh, I was working at a company up there, um, also kind of in the language multimedia department doing research work. And starting to think about what I wanted to do next as I was finishing my PhD at the same time. And there were a few startups that came into my attention, primarily through connections through you know, my, my research academic circle. So um, one of them was focused on more machine translation. One of them was focused on more uh, kind of social media or social presence analysis. Uh, and the third one, Fiscal Note, was really interesting to me because it was focused on computational social science applications of machine learning. Uh, and that was what was probably the drew me in the most. So a lot of the work that I did um, and that most people do kind of in their PhDs relates to um, large data sets that are funded by the government in some way, whether it's for machine translation or question answering or information retrieval. Um, but not a lot of work, at least at the time, I think this is more so now the case, but still relatively infrequent, is focused on social kind of social science applications. So um, how do we apply machine learning and NLP to policy, to politics, to uh, you know, legal uh, aspects, to journalism. And so there's computational journalism, there's computational law, there's computational you know, bio, right? And so all of these are kind of these emerging fields uh, that I was really interested in, again, by virtue of uh, the advisor that I had at University of Maryland. He also kind of sat in the cross-section of linguistics and computer science and interested in uh, computational social science and, um, and psychology. And so he actually was part of a uh, the Maryland incubation uh, kind of um, office because uh, he had a couple ideas that he was incubating as well. And through that, got connected to Jonathan Chen, the original CTO and co-founder of Fiscal Note. And so when they were in the plug and play accelerator on the East Coast, 
Viscanet was just coming out of that kind of in the fall of 2013. They were reaching out to people on the East Coast through Maryland, through the connections they had, to see if there was machine learning and NLP expertise that they could draw on when they're moving back to DC and starting off here. So they actually had a few folks on. They had a front-end engineer, back-end engineer, um, and I was the first, I guess, machine learning scientist that was hired to form this kind of pack, basically, of that was our technology team. It was kind of front-end, back-end, and data science. Uh, and the, um, the thing that drew me the most to Fisonote basically was this ability to use what I had at the graduate level to basically have someone that needed to know machine learning and NLP to help build out the original core product. Because at least again, at the time, this has probably changed. There weren't that many startups that needed the level of expertise that I could bring that early on. Usually build out a product first, you collect some data, and then you think about how do you introduce data science or other aspects. At the time, this was fairly unique that they were this early, you know, just getting seed round funding and wanted to, at the core of their product, really focus on how do we automate and enable the technology use of what we could do with NLP and machine learning to help the policy and legal world and, and people who work in that world to have a, you know, a leg up in, in doing whatever they were doing. So you got connected through the, uh, through the university network in a sense. So, I, um, yeah. they just going to started in a, almost like a little accelerator program. Is that right? So yeah. So Tim, Jonathan and Gerald, the three founders, uh, went out to California in the summer of 2013 and they, uh, got into the plug and play accelerator. Okay. So they were there for a few months and from there they were basically trying to, you know, gain interest cold call, email, connect to other VCs, um, and it, you know, ended up successfully getting a seed round led by Mark Cuban and, and Jerry Yang and a few others, NEA. Um, and that initial seed round kind of propelled them out of the accelerator back into the DC market. Um, first office was uh, well, a couple smaller kind of rental places, but then the first office was right here in Bethesda, Maryland, kind of outside of DC, where we started off of East West Highway. That's where I joined them initially, where it was, you know, basically nine or 10 people for six, seven days a week, all there, most of the time, um, all engaging in the kind of almost everything, kind of, you know, the whole company. And that's probably the best feeling at the very beginning. That's kind of the, the, the stage where it feels like the best version of a college project where every single yeah. member of that team is contributing everything they can all the time uh, to get you to the, the next place. That's a good analogy. Yeah. Cause I was going to ask, you know, um, you know, the interest in startup world, if that was something that came from your roots, your background, any entrepreneurs in your family that, uh, you know, you felt like this was a really interesting and appealing opportunity versus going into a, you know, a much larger, you know, organization. Right. Yeah. I don't think it's anything in my family. I think that it probably has something to do, you know, if I was to analyze a little bit back, um, with coming here as an immigrant and having to build something fresh. So in that way, I guess we're all like my whole family, all, you know, my extended family that came here from, from Russia. In that way, we're kind of all entrepreneurs, right? We, we come to a new place. We have to build from scratch, essentially. There's not that much support, although obviously there are organizations that help support um, refugees, which we were at the time, to come here. And so that kind of spirit of basically, you don't really have much. You start off and you know you have something internally that you want to prove that you want to show. I think that probably has something to do with 
me wanting to also come in this early and being able to to show and prove that we can build something. Now, at the time, that's not really how you think, right? This is more of the the just a story you tell afterward. But I, I do think that there's something in that that gave me that risk profile and that confidence that it's okay not to be in an established company that has you know foreseeable future. You know, when you join a startup, basically there's a runway. And mm-hmm. uh, one question that I think people often ask is like, well, don't you worry that like you have no customers, you have no clients, you have no revenue, and you have a set of money, right? That's going to end at some point. Like, isn't that something that's on your mind constantly? Like, there's this runway. Um, and I think if you ask. Our CEO, that's probably the answer would probably be more like a yes. Like he does obviously think about that. That's part of his role. But the confidence that we have in him and the rest of the team, we know our role is we don't worry about the fact that, you know, in a year or less, there isn't a company. What we think about is how do we make sure that we're doing the next thing today and you know the day after and the day after that makes it much more likely that we're actually gonna, you know, build the product that we want, that we get that next deal comes in, you know, whatever it is that we need to do. And so that's I think the the focus uh, in my roots of just taking kind of one day at a time and building up from wherever you are and, and being confident that you can make it better each day. Yeah, it seems like you know you really have to buy into the you know, to the founders' vision, and and um, seems like you know it was a, a good group of of leaders there. Um, you know, I was looking back on some some crunch based data, and it was like a twenty five thousand dollars seed seed round or something uh, at, back in the day or something. You know, quite, well, it quite was a bit more. more. It was it was um, a little over a million for the initial seed round. For the initial seed, maybe this twenty five k was some sort of like a. Um, there was something probably maybe other, uh, other. Yeah, exactly. Other things. Um, so then you you kind of referenced or alluded to it. Um, a pretty impressive, you know, group of investors uh, that get on board pretty early on. What do you think it was uh, that was you know so appealing that they were buying into? What do you think it was? You know. Uh, the passion behind the the mission or uh, the tech specifically that they were have, had a chance to get a look at? What what was it, do you think, that, that kind of got that buy-in early on? Of course. At the very beginning, as is the case, I think, with every startup, you're buying into the team. There's no tech to speak of. There's no product to speak of. Not to say that there might not be something that's kind of the initial version of, of the product, right? But if that was the only thing you're looking at, you wouldn't, I think, most of the time invest as, as an angel or kind of an early stage VC. You're really looking at the team the market and the vision that they have. You know, do you feel confident that this group of people knows and understands what it takes to make a product, make something viable, make a business in this? So I think that Tim deserves a lot of the credit here, if not all. Obviously, Jonathan and Gerald deserve a lot of the credit too. But I think Tim was able to present the vision that he had, you know, even nine years ago, basically of, you know, I think it's even more today than what he was probably imagining, although he might say this is exactly what he imagined, right? Um, but I think he already had that in his mind, and he was able to very well express that to you know potential investors. Like, this is the opportunity. He worked uh, in politics for a little while before he started this company. He understood some of the challenges of corralling the information and the resources and the people involved in the decision making that needed to happen. He saw how inefficient some of that was. He saw the competitors or the kind of uh, cur- the products that exist today. Um, and, and how people were using them in the legal and information services marketing. You saw those limitations. I think he was able to coalesce that with the market dynamics that the technology and the ability to automate and collect data was increasing. The uh, compute resources were becoming much more available. So cloud resources, uh, all of the confluence basically of the computation coming together with the availability of the data, of the ability of the kind of uh, resources. 
I think that's very important too. I think that's often overlooked in the you know analysis of, of a company. Right? Was it the right product at the right time? You know, with sure. the right market. And so the legal tech, reg tech market, which I think sometimes we're affiliated with, is somewhat slower to adopt new technology. The risk averseness is higher than in a consumer product where there's more decisions that are being made that might affect the you know, income statements or bottom lines or you know, existence of a company overall if, if they're regulated or enforced out of existence or if there's something that they're doing that's you know, out of compliance. And so I think lining up that is, um, you know, Tim had all of that in mind. I think he was able to really represent that to the investors that bought into that vision uh, mm. and have been with us ever since. That's awesome. And so you were hired as one of the first kind of data scientists um, uh, into the company. Uh, you know, when when you join a company of, of that, you know, that small, um, I'm, I'm always inter- intrigued in terms of, you know, uh, do you go in with a, with a game plan of, you know, you, you as a, a professional, like how you want to expand? Like, do you want to, to be a, a people manager? Do you just want to kind of, you know, stay in the weeds of the data? Um, was that something that was posed to you early on or, or was that something that ended up evolving as you just, you, you're, the company grew? And, and then I'd, I'd love to just kind of hear about that, that first hundred, right? You know, in headcount, like how does that, how did that work out for you? And like some of those pain points that maybe you ran into along the way? Yeah. So going into this, going into a startup, the rationale for me was I want to experience as much as I can of what that means, right? Because I don't know what that means. You know, before I join, I have an idea in my head of what building a company looks like. I know what I don't want. I don't want to immediately have a career where I'm only focusing on a specific research problem, where I'm judged by you know the research papers I produce, or even you know the application of that into some product uh, in an industry lab. You know, I wanted to have a broader course, basically, of understanding marketing and business development and operations and engineering and how everything comes together in a way that you know has this kind of like i said this kind of dance this beautiful dance that emerges uh and with that i didn't really have an idea of well, what i'm going to contribute you know as it evolves and one of the things that i'm sure you've heard a lot is you wear different hats at different times and part of the intrigue and the draw of joining a startup early on for those people is that they want that experience of wearing a certain hat for 6 months for 9 months for a year two years and then having part of that move to somewhere else, figuring out a different part of the business and a different aspect of their role in growing. And so what has drawn me and kept me here all this time is actually that I feel like I always have one foot in order and one foot in chaos, that there's a constant push to grow to another area where I'm weak. So at the very beginning, I obviously had no experience in managing anyone or managing a team, building out industry kind of level um, infrastructure or software. I had a lot of experience in how to build really good machine learning systems, but you quickly learn that in isolation, that doesn't really help anyone. The customer doesn't care how good your system is if it's not solving a problem for them. So even that, even that learning, right? Like it's not about the technology, it's about how well you're solving a problem for the customer, that kind of framework, that shift, right? Like all of that is what I learned. So over time, I had opportunities basically that I didn't think I would, but that came about. So as the team naturally started to grow, there was more people and I kind of started to put together all of the processes, our hiring processes, our onboarding, um, the structure of the code base, even even though now my team would say it's horrible and they're trying quickly to get out of that initial structure, which is great. I love that. Um, but putting together all of the frameworks essentially for how this team is going to operate 
and led me to the natural kind of point of well, leading that team. And then over time, as we evolved, there were other needs that we hadn't had before. So the core team that I started on that I led was focused on data science for our product. How do we you know, do analysis and, and modeling that presents to the user? And there was a need for internal data science. So how do we enable and uh, automate some of the things that we're doing internally to help our internal teams like customer success and professional services do the work that they're doing? So focusing on internal things. And there was a need for more internal analytics stacks, like how well our products are working, how well our other internal systems and transactions are happening. And so just naturally over the course of time, all of these things grew. And I was in a position where you could say, I guess I didn't say no. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there was still a need and a desire to have me grow into these roles. Hey, startup techies. Has this podcast inspired you to explore a new startup career opportunity? then make sure to check out myhatchpad.com slash jobs to browse startups by stage, tech stack, and salary. Real quick for context, what's the uh, size of Fiscal Note from a headcount today? Rough, rough um, estimate. So, so the, the company is probably somewhere between 850 and 950 in terms of our employees. Okay. And so, you know, Talk me through the um, the growth from you know the you know when you first kind of joined to the the first hundred and and head count here. Um, the emphasis was was probably a little bit more on, on uh, a bulk of the, the the tech teams versus you know sales or marketing. Like, how did you all kind of balance that out? What what were you investing in primarily first? Was was it more on the tech side? Yeah, this is a really interesting question, and especially in hindsight, I think it's one that's actually interesting to dissect. And I don't have any statistical data on this to confirm. This is just anecdotal. So a lot of the crop of companies that started around the same time as us had a lot more tech in their ratio of employees than us. So I think that you know in our first 100, I don't remember the exact breakdown, but our engineering team was probably no more than a third of that original 100. And so when I say engineering, I mean, you know, data science, product engineering, um, maybe it was a little bit higher, maybe maybe half. But even at the very beginning, we invested in the business development and the marketing teams. And I think that actually stands out as somewhat different from a lot of the companies at the time that are actually either no longer around as independent or acquired or have you know shut down um, yeah. from the kind of initial crop that we saw in 2013-14, which didn't have that investment. Or, you know, in adding to the argument, I guess, some of the companies that we've come in contact with through our acquisition strategy, you know, a lot of them we see have actually invested a lot more in the technology, and that's really good. But they haven't invested in their business development and marketing, and that's come back to hurt them in their ability to grow. And so I think, again, one of the things that I get a lot of credit to Tim for is this understanding that we need to make product technology a central part of our vision but not at the expense of understanding how we're going to actually bring that to market and that entire end-to-end flow. Yeah, really interesting balance of, of you know, how to, how to manage these different departments and, and putting weight on, yeah, you need to have good tech, you need to have that good foundation in the tech, but uh, you're at a loss if, you're not, if you don't have a solid sales and marketing team that can really push it and, and get it in front of the people that, that need to see it. Um, yeah, so I think that's and operations to support the entire you know, uh, effort, right? Like, so there's a lot of things that as you grow, things start to break. And as yeah. they break, you need to figure out how they're going to reemerge as, as a new yeah. process, as a new team, uh, as a new way of doing things. And that's 
back to what I was saying earlier, one of the interesting things about the order and chaos like that keeps people engaged, I think, is these new challenges that emerge as you grow at each stage, you see what breaks, you see what changes, and you need to kind of adapt to it. And hopefully it doesn't take you too long to notice that it's broken, but there's always going to be some amount of lag, I think, in a lot of places. So I, I would also say like, so, um, you know, my background, obviously we, we do a lot of work with, with helping startups scale out teams and recruiting efforts and HR culture related items. Would you say that that was part of it also part of that emphasis? You, re- you referenced operations. So would mm-hmm. you, you're baking in like HR talent? Yes, exactly. Culture. That's exactly okay. what I was thinking of. So, you know, early on, I think one of our first 30 employees was, you know, that's kind of a director. Well, one of our first 10 employees was kind of like a VP of operations. Um, wow. Uh, and then one of our first 30 was already, a, you know, people, um, a director of people or VP of people. And uh, I think recruiter came shortly after that. And so we knew that that culture, which is always in a you know, kind of an amorphous word, was something that we wanted to expressly in, invest in and make sure that someone is dedicated to thinking about that and focusing on that and how we're structuring our, our teams is supported. Uh, and there's some consistency that someone is providing. And so there's a number of those role in operations, people in recruiting HR. I, I want to uh, expand on that a little bit because um, you know you're a you're a company that has has grown pretty yeah pretty significantly year over year. Um, you know from a headcount perspective, and some of that you know organic just you know internal recruiting, but some of that you mentioned you referenced acquisitions. Um, how how would you say you know? Through acquisitions, um, you know, you absorb folks and and bring them into a culture. Uh, talk me through some of those strategies or some things that you would say that you you all did really well, or things in hindsight maybe you would have done differently in terms of getting these these different teams from different uh, organizations to to collaborate and gel together. Yeah, so we have grown quite a bit through acquisition, especially in the last two to three years. I think that. We've actually been quite successful in identifying good cultural fits and having a very, I would say, minimal approach to what we are kind of asking them to do as they come in. And that's one of the things that we're, we're working on, the kind of the playbook of how we integrate and how we make sure that companies are getting the benefit that we want and we're getting the benefit kind of across the different business lines. And so going back a little bit, I think the... First starting point is like the, the vision, like I talked about. It's been fairly consistent. Like, what do we want the world to look like as a company? If we're successful, what do we want the world to look like? And then the mission is, you know, what are we doing day to day to make that happen? And so when we look at companies, we obviously look at the composition of the people, who they have, you know, are there specific individuals or talented individuals or teams that are really unique? Are there technology aspects that they have that are really unique? Customer base, and then kind of what does that look like? What does it feel like? What do they do on the day-to-day operations? I think from the business perspective, we look for, is their customer base something that kind of overlaps with ours that we can immediately you know, cross-sell or, or otherwise um, enable with our products? And then from the people perspective, we look at, well, how are they structured? Do they feel like they operate in some of the same ways that we care about? And we can get into it to our values a little bit later on, but essentially the more important ones are you know, autonomy, able to operate in ambiguity, proactiveness, kind of owning, having a bias for action, supporting the, you know, the team and the family. And so when we look at these companies and that they have come in, we have structured a lot of the 
first integration to be, you know, our back office systems, legal, finance, HR. So we want to kind of take that off their plate. And oftentimes, small companies don't really have that much operation going on there. And then what we really focus on is enabling them to do whatever they were doing. So the reason that we wanted to work with them and acquire them in the first place is they have a product, they have a customer base that we think would actually match really well with the vision and mission of our company. We don't want to mess it up. We want them to feel like they're supported in continuing their operations and their roadmap and building out with it. And so in the, I think, over 10 acquisitions that we've done over the last couple of years, you know, each of them has assembled into um, a unit that makes sense with potentially themselves and another two or three other products that have similar customer bases or similar kind of user or customer personas. But other than that, we actually try to have very minimal kind of um, principles of what they absolutely need to do because they probably have things more or less figured out in some ways. And we're there to help in supporting their transition into some of the things that we want to do, um, but not have a very heavy hand in that. And so I think some of the things that we've learned are first, that there needs to be a bit more structure than we started off initially. So at the beginning, we, like many startups, kind of steer on the side of let's bottom up, see how this goes. Let's try and iterate like agile approach. And so I think we learned pretty quickly that there needs to be some more structure in some places. And so we're kind of building it up, but not trying to make it overly complex. Um, and I think that that has been what we're using now to kind of build out our playbooks and become a little bit more uh, dedicated, have dedicated resources that are helping and facilitating some of these integrations and acquisitions, which we didn't have before. We're kind of asking people to, to help work on this off the side of their desk. And, and that's one of the things that we absolutely want to invest in now. And then the second is um, making sure expectations are set correctly on both sides, on ours and theirs, on what this is going to look like when we have them come in, um, what we're expecting from their development, from their roadmap, from their customers, and, and what they can expect from us. So oftentimes, someone coming in is likely to look at us and say, we're a bigger company. You know, We're going to get resources from you to help us do these things. And again, that might be the case. That might not be the case. But making those explicit kind of, um, at the very beginning so that people are, know what they're walking into. Same as hiring, right? Very, very yeah. similar to recruiting. I like, I like to be as honest as possible about the challenges and things that people are going to walk into the first day so that they're not surprised because that would be uh, disingenuous and, and worse for everyone. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that transparency is is vital to um, you know the success. You don't you don't want to bring somebody in with false um, expectations, or you know they think they're coming into something different than they are. Um, that's a really interesting um, well, one growth strategy. But I think uh, stands out for me too is that you know you all went into that probably already having a decent foundation of who you were, right? Who your what your values were. Um, exactly. And that's a result of investing into a, 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 an operations and HR, people, talent a department that can can help with that. Because at the end of the day, too, yeah, you're buying, you're acquiring product, you're 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 getting uh, customers, but you're getting people, and how those people, um, you know, relate to the to to your people is a really important piece to yeah um, the longevity. And if of I could company. actually add to that, because you you brought up a really good point, which is that we have a now, a couple of years of having done this, we have a lot of cases of people from a company that has come in inorganically to us moving into a completely different role, a leadership role, a different role, like in another part of the company. We highly value that. I think we've benefited more from some of the individuals that have come in and taken on different roles of 
you know, leading different teams, of, of leading a broader team, of completely kind of changing career paths and contributing in, in a different place in the company. I think there are so many examples of that now, it's actually probably hard to keep track, which is great because it shows that we're not trying to just pigeonhole someone or something, you know, the company into a, where we started. Um, all right. Yeah. So let's, let's, uh, let's talk about the fact that you guys just went public last month. Congratulations. I think that's a, a super exciting accomplishment. Um, but going through that process, right? How do you kind of tee up the, uh, tee that up for your team, right? And let, letting them mm-hmm. know this is the route that we're, that we're getting ready to head and uh, getting them excited and, and everybody on board with, with that type of uh, announcement. Yeah. So when you, when you join a startup, it's somewhere in the back of your mind that you know, a possibility like this exists one day, but uh, it's not something that you're actively working on, actively thinking of. And then when it does become a potential reality, it's really because of all the work that everyone has done and continues to do. But there's only a small core group of people that are really actively working on the new steps of the new work necessary to, to get you to that IPO. So um, there's also, unfortunately, some additional legal requirements of mm-hmm. what can be shared and what can't be shared. So even though it feels like you really want to share everything with the company of how things are going, where things are with the SEC, um, there's actually certain restrictions that become really the, the main difference between being a private company, a public company of you know what is it okay to share and when internally? And when do you need to share things out externally? And so I think that for a lot of our folks, and this is what Tim, our CEO says, and has since, you know, since we, before we IPO'd is, you know, if you come to Fiscanote the day before we went public and the day after, it's going to look exactly the same. The people are working on the same things. They're working in the same ways. It hasn't changed any of the internal, you know, culture, the mobility, the dynamics. What has changed a little bit is now people can look at the stock price, which can be encouraging or distracting. So we want to make sure that we can navigate that. That people are excited about the fact that now there's liquidity in their equity, but also that it doesn't, uh, you know, affect their day to day. Like what we're doing here every day, building the products, you know, working with our customers, making them happy. That's going to ultimately be reflected in the equity price. But we're not, you know, directly having to worry about that. That's the additional step that a few other folks have to focus on investor relations and some of our audit reporting requirements. Um, but overall, I think you know, for a lot of people, for most people, the day to day hasn't changed, and now there's just this hopefully exciting event that you know everyone looked forward to with fanfare. Uh, we brought the teams together uh, for for the event. We flew as many people as we could out to New York and had them all stay and go to the New York uh, bell ring ceremony at the NYC. And so that was really fun to have everyone come together that we could there. Um, but then you know the next day it's back to normal. Yeah. I think that's a that's a really interesting uh, perspective, right? Like you know, the the day you, you came in the day before we went public, you know, things will be the same the day after. So I I think that's a a really good precedence to set. But oh, I'm curious from from you specifically, what was going through you know your head when that bell was getting rung at the New York Stock Exchange? I mean, <laughs> what a I mean for for somebody that's been there for you yeah. know you put blood, sweat, tears into this thing. What was going through your mind? Yeah. Well, it's funny you ask because as we were walking down, so the, the senior leadership team was up on the podium at NYC, Um, and we, you know we got up there before the bell opening. And, you know, we kind of all started clapping, uh, and then the bell rang at some point, and then we walked back down. and And someone asked me, "Hey, did you hear the bell start ringing?" And I thought about it, and I was like, "No, I didn't. I actually, 
I, d- I didn't even hear the bell ringing. I had to watch the video back afterward. And I realized, oh, yeah, it did start ringing somewhere in the middle there. Um, but it was just so caught up in the moment. And I think that really it started to hit us the day before when we came to the New York Stock Exchange building and the flag that they put down, the, the big banner for the company that's going public you know, tomorrow or kind of ring the bell tomorrow, stocks going out. And you know, there's a big fisk out there. And we were with a few of the folks that joined really early. So uh, a number of us were kind of walking around. And that's when it, I think, really hit us, the kind of memories of starting out in the Bethesda office, of going on Costco runs after work so we can get you know packs of ramen and drinks and, and juice boxes <laughs> and like the fruit that we would get that no one would eat. Because at that point, obviously, it's a lot of uh, mid-20-year-old people who are not as healthy as we probably are now. Uh, and you know, kind of all the different evolutions of, of the things that, you know, we had the hats we wore, right? Like they totally weren't related to any of the jobs that we did. It's just helping to, again, like support each other all this time. All of that comes flooding back. And so the memories, I think the emotions are very high um, of just like seeing this huge milestone of you being able to make something out of nothing and come to this point and achieve it and be recognized for it. And this just tremendous amount of work from so many different people and so many customers that believed in us throughout this whole time. What a surreal moment. That's, that's awesome. Um, it's, it's great that, you know, everybody, you know, from that starting point when you joined was all able to be there at the same time and kind of absorb that and experience it. So, um, really, really neat. Uh, uh, and again, congrats. I think it's a, a, a fantastic accomplishment. So long, long time coming I mean, and you guys, uh, you know, showed that, that hard work, uh, um, you know, it truly, it truly did pay off and, um, uh, to, so, commend you guys with really, really neat. Um, all right. Well, you know, I, I want to um, transition into a, a segment that we call the five second scramble. Um, and this is going to be, you know, a little bit more of a fun kind of rapid fire questions where, you know, give you five seconds to kind of sum up, sum up your answers. Uh, some of these will be, you know, professionally related. Some of them will be personal. So um, I'm going to, I'm going to jump into it here. Um, give me a quick explanation of your product as if I was a five-year-old. We like to help you understand what is going on and what you can do about it. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, what problems are you solving? We're solving the problem of the complexity of how the world operates within the political and financial markets. There's a lot of information, a lot of people involved, a lot of things that are going on at the same time, and they're constantly changing. And we're trying to pull all that together, break down the silos, and empower organizations to understand what they can do about the changes that matter to them. Who are your users? Our users are actually spanning a number of different places in the company or in the government that they work in. I'll say that the broad buckets are within public affairs, government affairs, legal, the general counsel's office, um, and people who care about policy and compliance. What's your favorite aspect about working at Fiscal Note? The people, the, the people that I get to interact with every day. I mean, that's essentially what the company is. It's a collection of people organized in a legal entity. Um, but without the people, I think no company would be able to operate in any way. What about your work keeps you up at night? How do we 
retain the people that we have. Interesting. Interesting answer. What type of engineer thrives at Fiscal Note? One that's comfortable in supporting others and in proactively walking into ambiguous situations with an opinion that they're ready to change if someone else has other opinions that are actually you know, more suited to achieving the overall customer or business intent. What's one of your favorite hobbies? Well, it's reading children's books, but probably not by my choice entirely. <laughs> so a parent, I take it. Um, yes, that's right. What, what's your favorite app on your phone? I speak a number of languages, but I'm still trying to learn more. So uh, Duolingo is actually one that I use, try to use every day. Cool challenges on there. Um, what is your favorite Disney character? Ooh, I'm not even sure what's Disney and what's not anymore. <laughs> um, but I would say that the genie and Aladdin, and that's probably saying Robin Williams, really. But yeah, uh, I, I can do I can do both. I'm fine with either either answer being the reason. Strong answer. Um, and then, uh, let's just kind of talk a, a little bit about some, some recruiting stuff. So we'll, we'll end that segment. You don't have to take five seconds for the next <laughs> wave. Um, <laughs> but that was fun. I, I, I do. I, I love seeing like, um, I get real raw and real answers when I, when we go do that yeah. exercise, it's really neat to watch. Um, but, um, yeah, just generally speaking in terms of like hiring, right. Um, f- fiscal notes, still hiring You're, you, you all are still growing as a company. Uh, what kind of roles are you actively hiring for? Uh, let's keep it more on, on the tech-related uh, openings. Yeah. We have a number of uh, engineering roles open, data engineer, machine learning engineer, full stack engineering. So we have, like, like I said, a number of different product stacks that we work on, which we didn't really touch on at all. But there's um, kind of the more, I would say, current stack of you know something in a Dockerized container that's running somewhere. And it's usually a Python backend, uh, maybe a, a single monolithic application. We have other stacks that are Java-based. And so we, we have different groups of people that we hire and some can cross-pollinate, some can't. So sometimes we have full-stack engineers that work in the Python or Angular. Sometimes we have single engineers that work in Java. Uh, and then we have the machine learning engineers that usually work in Python and other tools that we've built. Very nice. When you tend to hire, uh, do you tend to hire for a general skill set or do you look to kind of fill a need on a specific team? It depends on the state of and the stage of that team's development. So when I say that, what I mean is like when you look at your own company from the very beginning, you, you hire generalists because you don't know what hats they're going to wear. Similarly, when we have a team that's going from zero to one or one to two, we usually try to hire people that are going to be able to accomplish more than the very specific description. So for instance, you know, we're currently building out our data analytics team. And so for that, we're actually looking for people who could probably take on more general roles and then as we grow that team, there's going to be a more specific role for kind of the infrastructure and then the kind of visualization and reporting. And so once we get more advanced, like within our data engineering team, when we're growing it, there are probably more specific skills that we look for. So it depends on kind of, I'm at a stage, what trajectory, kind of where the growth of that team is right at the moment. Got it. And then, um, you know, are you all a distributed team? Uh, do you all work virtually, work remote? Yes. After 
after COVID, essentially, we were fairly local before. And after that, after, I guess, 2020 or so March, um, we haven't had a lot of people in one physical location concurrently, except for offsites or onsites, you know, when we bring people together. But other than that, people are working entirely remotely and virtually. So we have all hands that we do regularly. We have different kind of meetings for, for managers. We have our sprints and our agile kind of meetings that happen with the development teams and they bring product together. We have the meetings with kind of our product marketing folks and the other folks from the go-to-market teams come together. So I think there are various kind of standing meetings that should happen at various points in time. And then there are very specific team meetings that either do or don't happen depending on the needs of the team. And they change based off of the projects they're working on or who they need to interact with. But we've noticed as we've grown, as more and more people are involved in different decisions, you know, meetings grow and then we have to actively like cut and reevaluate when and how to add those back in. And that's one of the, the points of kind of like when things break, move on. You you answered the question without even me posing the question. <laughs> how, how how did the teams collaborate? That was that was genius. Um, that's all that's all we've got. And I I really just want to say thank you for for spending time with us and and explaining your story, Vlad. It's it's a it's a unique journey. It's it's one that um, I know it hits home for a lot of folks that are from the, the DC metro area. Um, and so you know, again, kudos on the success. Um, uh, that is the the fiscal note story, and we're excited to see where where it goes from here. Uh, thanks cool. for spending time with us on on uh, the pair program. Thanks a lot for having me. It's a lot of fun. Are you a startup founder or tech leader looking to grow your engineering or product teams? If so, Hatch IT could be a partner worth exploring. We've helped hundreds of startups scale their tech teams with relational and marketing-driven recruiting solutions. Check out hatchit.io slash hire to learn more about how we can help your teams grow.